Thanks, buddy. Well, good morning. How was Thanksgiving? Anybody done with their Christmas shopping yet? Did you finish on Friday? Okay, that's what Amazon's for, I guess. So uh, anyway, good to see you. My name is Luke, and I'm one of the pastors. And, and as Josh said, we're uh, starting a new series today. Uh, before we get into that, though, I want to just take a moment and um, invite those of you who are new here, or maybe you're just looking for a way to jumpstart your faith. I want to invite you to a class we're going to do um, after the first of the year called Start Here. It's a class I teach. It goes three weeks, and it's basically a chance for you to start your, uh, start your year and kind of jumpstart your faith and getting connected here and, and figuring out kind of how we can help you grow. We don't really believe that people grow best in rows. We think they grow best in circles, and so that's kind of a good first step for you to kind of uh, move in that direction. So you can look in your program. Uh, there's information on that on the back of your connection card if you're interested in joining me for that. I'd love to have you. All right, so Advent is the season we're in, and uh, we're going to take these next four weeks and, uh, and look at this series uh, on, called Return of the King as our Advent series. Advent is a word that means coming. It means arrival, uh, right? And, and so, so that's the idea, and typically Advent is celebrated around Christmas because we think about the first Advent. We think about the first arrival, the first coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, but historically in the church, the church has also used that as, a, as an opportunity to look ahead to the second Advent, to the second a time when Jesus will return. And so, and so this is an incredible and an important season for us, as, as you've been saying. We'll light candles. We're going to be anticipating. Um, and Matthew made a really good point uh, a couple weeks ago as we, he and I were talking about this. He said, you know, it's interesting that Christmas is kind of the pinnacle of two opposing worldviews. It, it, it's, it's this pinnacle of these two stories that compete for our attention, right? There, there's obviously the Christian story, which is how uh, Christmas sort of, you know, began. And that's the idea that we're going to look to Jesus because Jesus came to serve and Jesus came and he humbled himself and Jesus came to pour himself out for the hurting and the broken and the lost. But then our culture has kind of co-opted that story. They've, they've attacked it a bit, and there's now this humanistic, uh, consumeristic, materialistic kind of worldview and story that's competing, right? And so Christmas, and especially this Christmas season, just seems to be this pinnacle of these two competing stories. And so our desire for this series is as much as anything to make a microphone work, um, <laughs> As, as much as anything, our, our desire for this series is really to try to just create some space, even if just once a week as we gather together, where you can be reminded of the true story. You can be reminded of what's most important. You can maybe experience some peace and some rest and some of God's grace as then you go back out and you experience a world that is telling you a different story. So that's some of what we're hoping for. There's also a proactive way to, to do that, and uh, we know um, that our, our money... Uh, is kind of a, a thermostat for our heart. our heart. Our heart's temperature is set by how we use our money. And so one of the things we've decided to do around here each year for Christmas is to do a Christmas offering. And uh, this is something we'll do on Christmas Eve, but if you want to give to it between now and then, you're welcome to. It's become kind of a tradition for us where we pick a few different projects, a few different things related to our community uh, and ask people to give over and above what they would normally give to be part of this. So uh, this is kind of the, the initial Sunday where people can begin to do that if, if you 
want to. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about it. In the past, we've, we've set kind of increasingly audacious goals uh, for the Christmas offering. And last year, uh, you gave over $88,000 to the Christmas offering, which was pretty spectacular. I went to a number of, of causes there. Uh, but this year, we're not setting a, a big financial goal. Uh, and the reason is because, and this may be news to you, I, I know I, I sometimes bump into people who come to church here and don't realize this, is we bought ourselves a Christmas present this year. And, uh, and that, that Christmas present is 10 and a half acres directly west of this building. We've purchased that earlier in the year. And like most of your Christmas presents, we're still waiting to pay for it uh, fully. And so, uh, so that's what we're doing. And, and, and we called that project Roots because we said we're, we're not just buying property, we're laying down roots. We're in this rented space uh, for a limited amount of time. And we want something that's going to kind of signal to our community we're here to stay for the long haul. We're laying down roots. And so, so many of you have given given to that, have, have sacrificed, have made commitments, uh, I'd encourage you as you think about the end of the year to keep that project in mind. Uh, but because so many of you have been generous and sacrificial with that, uh, our goal for this Christmas offering is not to put a lot of pressure or to make you kind of feel like, oh gosh, here's one more thing I have to give to. But we do feel like it's an opportunity to give to some things um, that will help tune your heart to God's worldview and to God's agenda, maybe more than the culture. So not, no, no pressure here, but we'd love for you to participate. Rather than setting kind of a big, you know, here's our big number, we, we just would love to say everybody participate at the level that you feel like you can do. And so here's where the money's going to go to this year. Um, the first $10,000 will go to support our foster care and adoption initiative, Redemption Wide. Uh, we've been trying to make a dent in the foster care system. There are over 19,000 kids in that system now in Arizona. And uh, we're trying to just do our part to mobilize and to train and to equip and to support. And so the first uh, chunk of, of this gift will go to that. Uh, the next chunk, up to from ten dollars to $15,000, will go, that $5,000 will go to benevolence to try to help people in our church and in our community that are facing some hardship and need. And we'd like to be able to do that. And then anything above 15000 this is going to be cool, we'll add into it um, a gift to one of our partners in Turkey and make an initial investment toward a, a future church building for a building there in Turkey. Um, as, as you uh, may know, if you've been around for the last few months, we are partnered with Turkey. I just was there a few months ago. And uh, one of the partners that we met with talked about how, how really having a church building signals permanence, and it's official, and it's not some sort of weird cultish thing, meaning in someone's house. It's a real thing. And so uh, just like we're making an investment and a commitment into our future, we'd like to be able to do the same thing there. So um, feel free to, to pray about that, um, to give as you feel led, and uh, that's a little bit of what we're going to do this, this Christmas season. All right? Okay, well, let's dive into this series. Uh, this series is called Return of the King. As I said, we're focusing on the second advent, the second coming of Jesus Christ, this reality that Jesus Christ is coming again. Theologians call this the imminent return of Jesus, the imminent. It's, it could happen at any moment. It, it just, right now, in the middle of this sermon, Jesus could return. It could, it could happen. And uh, Philip Ryken is the president of Wheaton College, and I love what he says about this. He says, there's something about the imminent return of Christ that tends to bring out the crazy in people's theology. Somebody always wants to play pin the tail on the Antichrist or to hotwire biblical prophecies to global politics or to predict the exact date when the world will end. Now, if you don't know some of those words, it might mean that you're not as familiar with how goofy uh, Christians are as uh, some of the rest of us. But, but there's a lot of stuff when you think about the second coming of Christ, he's absolutely right, that brings out the crazy, 
Christians start talking about things like raptures and tribulations and antichrists and marks of the beast and try to sort of analyze which governments and which things are going to be responsible for what. And I'm not saying that that's an entirely fruitless thing. I think there can be some value to it potentially. Uh, But that's not where we're headed for this series. For this series, we're going to look at the fundamentals. Because here's the reality. You, You have to be able to walk and jog and do a somersault before you can do a cartwheel before you can do a backflip, before you can do a handspring. And as I interact with, with a lot of Christians that have been shaped by how, uh, sort of in the last century, how people have taught about the second coming of Christ, what I see is a lot of people distracted by all this other stuff, but actually confused about the core basics. So there's all sorts of questions about, well, is this person going to be that, or is, how's this going to work? And yet, oftentimes, people have missed the most obvious and the most important things. So I want to help prevent that from happening. And so what this initial sermon today is, is just kind of an introduction. It's going to help try to reshape and reframe our perspective so that we can track really through the rest of this uh, series. All right, just to give you an example of that, one of our pastors at one of our other congregations, we, we gather all together uh, to, to prepare sermons, and, and not just the preachers, but other leaders are in there. It's a great leadership development uh, place and experience. And one of our associate pastors in another congregation has a master's degree in divinity. He went to seminary, and he said, what we're talking about in this series has been the missing piece in my theology until the last few years. He said, I've got all the way through a seminary education, and what we're talking about, I never heard. I never understood. And yet now, as I read the Bible, I see it's everywhere. It's all over the place. And so that's where we're going to head today. So this series, The Return of the King, it's about the end of the story. Well, if we're going to look at the end of the story, it helps to to do the beginning, right? You don't want to walk into a movie with a half hour left. You're confused. You don't understand what's going on. So we're going to look at the beginning of the story. So here's the true story of the world. Here's the history of the world. Here's how we've gotten to the place we are. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right? There's the down arrow because God, God, in a sense, spoke down. He created to us, and he created us. We were made in God's image, male and female. He created us equal but, but different. And God created us, and the creation, the Scripture says, was very good. So that's the first part of the story. That's the, the setting. And then every time I tell a story with my daughters, they often will say, Hey, Daddy, make up a story. Tell us something. And I'll always have in in the story, I'll always say something like this. And then something terrible happened. Right? And they lean in and their eyes get big. Why do I always say that? Because every story has a moment like that. Why does every story have a moment like that? Because the true history, the true story of the world had a moment like that too. God created everything good, but then you had what theologians call the fall. The entrance of sin into the world. Adam and Eve were tempted to disbelieve and to distrust God. God had said, you can trust me. I want you to enjoy this Garden of Eden. It's paradise. You can do whatever you want. Just this this one tree, don't eat from it. But Eve was tempted to distrust God. And she saw that the tree was good for food. And that it was a delight to the eyes. And that it was desired to make one wise. And so she took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And the whole world plunged into sin. You can see, in, just in Genesis chapter 3, when you read that story, all this alienation occurs because of that. 
They're alienated from God. They're hiding from him. They're alienated from themselves as they begin to experience shame before they were naked, but now they're coming up with coverings to try to cover their nakedness. They're alienated from each other as the husband says, well, God, it was the wife that you gave me, and, right, and they're arguing with one another. And they're alienated even from creation, which is now going to produce thorns and make their work difficult. And so all of this alienation, all of this brokenness, even that we experience to our day, and I, I don't need to go and just list all the different ways that the world is broken, do I? And we know it. It's broken. God created it very good, and then something terrible happened. I'm going to switch to the handheld, just a second. This is fun. I always feel like a TV preacher when I get one of these. <laughs> Sow your very best seed. If you don't get that joke, don't, don't worry about it. All right. So God creates everything good, and then something terrible happened. Then the question that the rest of the Bible is trying to answer is how's that going to get fixed? How's that going to get resolved? What's going to happen? There's a big question mark about what comes next. How does this work, right? And it's interesting because every story sort of follows this same basic pattern, right? Some, there's the good setting, something terrible happens, and then the whole rest of the story is trying to figure out how is this going to be resolved? How's this going to be dealt with? Well, as you read the, the scriptures, especially the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, one of the things you see is that the, the answer of how is this going to get resolved is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is what's going to resolve this problem, is what the Jews began to expect. They were told uh, that Abraham, their first father, was uh, told that he would be the father of a great nation. One of his descendants becomes David, King David, the same David who, who killed Goliath, the same David who became king, the same David who fell into terrible sin with Bathsheba, the same David who wrote many of the Psalms, was told by God, another covenant was made with David, that he would have a descendant that would sit on the throne forever. The anticipation, the answer of how is this going to get resolved is the kingdom of God. So it's no surprise when you read in the Old Testament prophets, that's kind of the crunchy part in the middle of your Bible that you don't read very much because it's a little hard to understand. Uh, but, but there's parts in there that make it very clear that, that there's an anticipation for a kingdom. God, make this world new. Make it better. Fix this problem. And the answer will come through the coming of a king and the coming of a kingdom. And so that takes us to Isaiah 11. This is just one of many passages that talk about the hope of how God will fix all that's been broken by sin. There's a few things that we see in Isaiah 11. Look at verse 1. It says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. It's a prophecy that, that somebody from the line of Jesse would, would emerge. Uh, well, why is that significant? Well, Jesse was the father of David. So somebody in the line of King David who had been promised this eternal kingdom is going to come, verse 1 says. Here's the description of him starting in verse 2. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. 
But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Here's what this is saying. A king is coming that's unlike any other king. You read the Old Testament scriptures, you see that the nation goes to the degree that the, that the king is following after the heart of the Lord. And this prophecy is saying, a king is coming, and he's unlike any king you've ever had. He's filled with God's spirit. Righteousness, verse 5, shall be the belt of his waist. Whereas most kings and most people in power exploit the poor, he will judge them with righteousness. He will offer grace and equity to the meek and to the poor. A king is coming who is unlike any other king. So the Jews began to hope in that. They began to anticipate that. Well, then the passage continues. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. Now, this may be obvious, right, that wolves and lambs don't dwell together, right? Fattened calves and lions, and you don't have your kids play with them, right? There's a reason there's a wall at the zoo, right? This is not how things work in this current present age. So this is talking about an age to come when things will be different, when there will be a new unprecedented kind of peace. Verse 7, the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the whole Of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Uh, By the way, I have a nursing child right now. She's almost five months, and the dominant thought in our home most of the time is, is Mary safe? And I guarantee if there was a cobra, a cobra hole out back, we're moving, right? We're we're not like, hey, Mary, let's see how Mary likes it, right? We're not going there, right? This is, this is a whole different thing we can't imagine, right? Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Imagine that. The whole earth filled with knowing God, like the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, this again is this king, this coming Messiah, this this king figure, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it goes on. Here's what we see. We see Isaiah predicting a king who will come, who's unlike any other, and a kingdom that's coming that's unlike any other. So how will God restore what's been broken by the fall? It will happen through a king and a kingdom. If you want to kind of understand the kingdom of God as we get it both from this passage and others in the Bible, here's kind of a, an expanding definition of the kingdom of God. First, the kingdom of God is God's power breaking into history. That's what's being described here. Someone's coming that wasn't here before. God's power breaking into history. The kingdom of God is God's renewing power breaking into history. Undoing the effects of sin. Making things more like they were in the original creation. The kingdom of God is God's renewing power, breaking into history by the Spirit. This describes in verse 2 very clearly, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge. Right? Other scriptures talk about that when the Spirit comes, the kingdom of God 
has come. The kingdom of God finally, here's kind of a full definition, is God's renewing power, breaking into history by the Spirit to restore his rule over all creation, all humanity, and all nations. So, in light of this, if you're reading the Old Testament scriptures and you're thinking about all these promises and you've heard about creation and you've heard about the fall, how is this going to be fixed? Well, the Jews began to anticipate that it would be fixed by the restoration of the kingdom, that God would, again, just like he came down in creation, that God would come down again. And so they anticipated that it would be creation, fall, restoration. Creation, fall, restoration. We get this idea, as you think about restoration, this is the idea that God is recreating, that God is making things new again. That sin will not have the dominant power and the dominant presence that it continues to have in our world because it will go creation, fall, restoration. That's what they expected. The kingdom would come, that it would be fulfilled, that this Isaiah 11 prophecy, a king is coming and he's bringing a kingdom that's going to make everything new. Just to give you a taste of this, in Luke and Acts, uh, the, the writer, Luke, records a number of places that indicate that this is what the Jews thought would happen. Creation, fall, restoration. Now, uh, and get this, it wasn't just the kind of the Jewish religious leaders that thought this way. It was them for sure, but it was also the disciples. A number of places you see that the disciples expected uh, that a Messiah was coming and he was going to empower, bring a new kingdom that was going to destroy wickedness and make all things new. Just to give you a couple examples, Luke 19 says this. As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And so he begins to tell a story about how people are waiting and it's going to take longer than you think. You aren't maybe understanding this right. Luke 24 uh, there's these disciples who are walking on the road of Emmaus and they encounter this man. It turns out to be Jesus. They don't realize it. And these disciples are discouraged and they're downcast. And the man says to them, what, what happened? Why are, you, why are you so down? They said, haven't you heard about what's going on? Haven't you heard that, that Jesus was crucified? And then they say this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. You get what they're saying? We had thought that Jesus was the king, but there's no way a king that's been in the grave now for three days can be the one. Because he clearly hasn't brought this about. He's lost. We thought he was going to be the one to, to redeem Israel, to usher in the kingdom in its fullness. You see, the disciples still don't understand when you get to the book of Acts, after Jesus has been risen from the dead, they ask him. It says, verse uh, 6 of chapter 1. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, Jesus, we understand that that, you know, that death on the cross thing was sort of a speed bump, and we're good with that now. But, but you're going to, like, finish the job, right? Like, we understand now you were verses 1 to 5 of Isaiah 11. You are the king that's unlike any other. We got that, but it's time for part two, right? Jesus says, it's not for you to know the time. But I'll send you my spirit and you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. But that's the expectation. Creation, fall, restoration. See, they missed that there was this gap. 
And, and again, everybody seemed to miss it as you read the Gospels. But Jesus, Jesus says, my kingdom is an already and a not yet kingdom. My kingdom comes and is initiated and inaugurated through my first coming, and it will be fulfilled through my second coming. And so there was this gap that they didn't understand. They didn't understand that the true story of how this was to take place was creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Because see, the thing is, is the problem wasn't all the wickedness out there. The problem is the wickedness in here. And so the Messiah didn't come just to clean house out there. He came to clean house in here. And he has, in grace and in patience and in kindness, delayed coming again. When there will be judgment and there will be wrath and punishment poured out on those who reject him. But he's delayed that renewing of all things until he comes again. Creation, fall, Redemption, restoration. So the question is, well, when did the kingdom come? Well, the kingdom came in Jesus' first coming. But the kingdom isn't fulfilled until his second. Here's, here's maybe another way to think about it. This, this weekend, uh, we were out of town for Thanksgiving. We had a Thanksgiving with my uh, cousin and, and my aunt and uncle. And the whole apartment that we were in just smelled spectacular the whole day. We didn't eat till like five. And I was going, holy cow, let's get to this. Like, this smells too good. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm anticipating. I'm ready. And so at one point, my uncle Kelly is carving the turkey. He says, hey, Luke, come over here. Okay, I'm interested. And he cuts off this juicy, tender, oh, so good, piece of turkey. He says, here, try this. Oh, eat it. Melts in my mouth. It's delicious. The question then, did I have Thanksgiving? Well, it's kind of a trick question, right? Like I didn't have the full meal at that point, but I had truly had part of the meal. Right? I'd had a foretaste of the meal. I, it, it's, it's like, it's like a, a movie trailer. right? You really see part of the movie, but you don't see the whole thing. But what you see is the real thing. When Jesus came the first time, he was giving a foretaste of the kingdom, a preview of the kingdom. And then he promises to bring it again. Now, before we kind of get on our high horse and get real judgmental about how the Jews misunderstood it, we need to understand that there's a way that Americans misunderstand this. As I said earlier, there are a lot of people who get distracted by all the details and forget the core. They've never heard it. Maybe they just don't know. And a lot of people, I talked to someone after the first service and said, I've never heard that before. I, I just have never thought of it that way. Wow, I, that's totally new to me. Someone's been around church a while. And so there's an American expectation that's different from this story of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Here's the American story. Creation, fall, redemption, heaven. I'm out of here. That's the way we think. Creation, fall. Yeah, Jesus died for my sin so that I can go to heaven. I'll fly away, oh glory. I'll fly away when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Right? That's how we think about it. Christians that think about the second coming are often very much interested in when is the rapture so that I can get out of here. And I get that. I understand that. And the Bible does describe that if 
if people who are in Christ, they die, they go to be with Jesus. And that's really more of the language. is not that we go to heaven, but that we go to be with the Lord. We go to be with Jesus. Now, it just so happens that Jesus is in heaven. So yeah, we go to heaven. But that's not the, the point of the story. The point of the story isn't that we get to hit the eject button and get out of here. The point is that heaven is coming to us. Right, so the true story of the world, a better hope, is creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Heaven's just a, a stopping point along the way to God's future plan when he will come and bring heaven to earth and restore all things in a physical creation, right? This, heaven, we think about heaven, we're like, are we on clouds? Are we dressed as babies? Are we playing harps? What are we doing? It just, it doesn't, there's a reason why most people go, I don't really, that sounds more like hell. The, the reason is because that's not the point. The point is a renewed physical creation with a resurrected body and a new heaven and a new earth. That's the point. Here's the way I think about this. Imagine that you're going to take your family, your kids, your grandkids, you're going to go to Disneyland, right? And you're driving here and you, you're all excited to go and you, you start driving and after a couple hours, you know, there's been a lot of... Uh, are we there yet? And right, the car's starting to get a little smelly and you're like, this is taking forever. There's all these bathroom breaks and you're just getting frustrated by life in the car, right? But you're headed to Disneyland. And imagine at some point you pull into Indio and you're just like, oh, I'm so glad to have a break. And, and in Indio, by God's amazing grace, there's a McDonald's and it has a play place in it. Right, and you're like, kids, you've been cooped up in the car. I know you haven't liked this. Get in that play place. Burn, some, you know, get out some stink. You know, do your thing. Have fun, right? And they go, and they are playing, and they are having a great time. And, and when it's all done, they're like, oh, do we have to leave? This is amazing. And you're like, wait, wait, wait. No, no. This is okay. This is a McDonald's playground. But we're going to Disneyland. And, they're like, you know, and, and so you get back in the car, and they're like, can we go back? And then you go to Disneyland, and then on the way home, you ask them, like, what was your favorite part of the trip? And they go, man, that McDonald's playground <laughs> was so fun. And then they write, you know, they, they grow up and they write a book about it. It's like 90 minutes in McDonald's, and uh, McDonald's play place is for real, and, you know, all these sorts of things. <laughs> now listen, I know I'm, I'm poking fun of that. I'm not, I'm not saying that all the discussion about and focus on heaven is bad. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is it's misguided. Can you imagine as a father how you'd feel if your kid said the highlight was McDonald's? You go, but, but we went to Disneyland. Right? I think that might be how God feels a bit when we talk all about heaven. Going, yeah, 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 heaven's great. It's a good stop. You know, you'll enjoy it. It's better than earth, Yeah. But, but the, the best thing, the thing I've been saving for you is when the kingdom comes in its fullness and heaven comes to earth. That's what he's about. That's what he's anticipating. Now, maybe that's been hard to track. Maybe you still haven't got it. So, so I want to show you something. If they say if a picture is worth a thousand words, then maybe a video is worth a million, okay? So, so take a look at this video. It really helps explain it. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space 
gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty, but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's 
healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Some of you are like, you should have just shown that. This could have been a lot shorter. Um, That's uh, some guys from the Bible Project. They're actually doing some Kickstarter type stuff to raise money to make more videos like that, but really, really helpful. And doesn't that sound good? I mean, isn't that, that all things new, a bigger, more compelling vision than smell you later, I'm out of here? Doesn't that inspire more hope for making a real difference in this world now? Doesn't it make you want to be a witness to all that God is and all that he's doing? So that's what we're going to keep talking about over these coming weeks, is we're going to talk about next week the king, If Jesus is the king and he's established and is establishing his kingdom, then what does it look like to follow and to submit to him as king? So hope you'll join us. For now, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do. God, thank you for the clean space that he creates in our hearts. Thank you that his kingdom spreads as each person And as each local church is by his blood cleansed and made new. God, thank you for the hope that we have that you're coming again, that all things will be made new. God, I pray that you would allow that to inspire us with hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.